This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me again this week is Norman Lau. And Norm, I'm very pleased to announce to everyone that you are the new permanent co-host here on Warp 5. And I'm absolutely excited at the opportunity for that, Christopher. It's um, As you know, I've told you this in the past, that Warp 5 was the first show that I listened to when I first discovered Trek FM, and I'm a huge Enterprise fan, and I just, I'm so excited with having the opportunity to discuss Enterprise at this level, and and uh, bring some new insights to the fans listening out there. Most definitely. Well, I'm glad to have you here. This will be the first time in about a year, actually, that this show has two co-hosts, permanent co-hosts, that is. I will say to everyone, we're still going to be bringing some of the regular guests on. Of course, Tommy Kraft, Tyler as well will be joining us from time to time. So we'll have some more three-person discussions on here from time to time. But Norm, I'm really glad to have you here. So every week, we're going to get together, plan our topics just like we do on our other series shows, and really dig into Enterprise. Absolutely. So this week, we're going to record the show that we tried to record a week ago Right before we were going to record this show, we were finishing up the ready room. That's when I got the call that my daughter had broken her clavicle, and I got to ride across town in an ambulance, which is uh, not as fast as a shuttle pod, but um, has more flashing lights on it. Well, I'm just glad that, you know, she's okay. Yeah, she's doing okay. Although I wish that we had some, you know, probably 24th century, you know, you can wave something over her and mend the bone because I think Phlox would probably put a leech on her shoulder or something. Sure, sure. (laughs) Well, the topic we're going to talk about today is one that you suggested, Norm, and this is weaponizing Starfleet. What we see over the course of Enterprise as a series is we see them go out there at first really thinking we're going to go out and explore the galaxy. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to meet all these great people. And probably building upon a bit of how we think about aliens, certainly how scientists think about them these days, which is that anyone else out there must be far more advanced than we are, and so they must be peaceful. But of course, that turns out not to be the case. 
as Archer and his crew learn. And over the course of the series, we see them really start to weaponize the Enterprise and come to terms with the fact that they are going to have to be a military organization, not just a scientific exploratory organization. I guess the thing to try and reconcile with when watching Enterprise Season 1 and thinking about even the launch of the NX-01 prior to what the uh, the events were in Broken Bow, what are the expectations of the crew going out there and being able to explore, but also at the same time being able to defend the exploration, if you will, if they ran into situations that may have been seemingly hostile? I guess the difficult thing for some fans maybe to reconcile with also is the fact that everyone that knows Star Trek is the mantra from from Zephyr and Cochran is to boldly go and explore and seek out strange new worlds and new civilizations. Right. But how do you do that with optimism in one hand and a little bit of skepticism in the other because the unknown for humanity is always met with some type of trepidation, if you will. You know, I think one of the most telling moments in season one is one that I referenced on here recently, where they just go out and they're like, yeah, hey, we're humans. We're from Earth. You know, Here's a map to our planet. Right. There's, there's this like wide-eyed explorer mentality that gets them into trouble really, really quickly. And I, I don't know, like I can, maybe I can see today if we were to have access to a warp five ship and we went out there to explore, we might have that mentality, but these are people who have been through world war three. They've been through the aftermath of that. They've been through their relationship with the Vulcans and then they find this Klingon in a cornfield, right? So, I mean, yeah, I know that yeah. they can't have the Enterprise ready to defend itself that quickly if they weren't planning on it, but it, it just seems like um, there were some warning signs already, right? Well, I think so, but again, you, you make some pretty good points here in terms of referencing what humanity has gone through in the last, say, 100 years prior to creating the Warp 5 engine. And we have yeah. a world war. We have World War Three. We have the eugenics wars. We have all of this weighing on humanity moving forward. And I think that the one thing that helped build Starfleet and helped build the push for moving out there and exploring was optimism. Optimism that there's got to be something better out there than a lot of the, you know, a lot of the trauma that we've suffered through as a species, as a race. In the past, and I think that's what basically Starfleet's mandate was built on, was built on this great optimism of going out there and exploring the unknown vastness of space, trying to build these great relationships with all of these other races. When, you know, when the first Vulcan expedition found Zephram Cockman's warp signature, that changed the course of humanity and I think that we poured a lot of that optimism into that relationship. But it doesn't necessarily mean that every single alien race that we will meet out there will be as, well, as hospitable, if you will. The Vulcans weren't really truly hospitable, but as hospitable or mm-hmm. as, as amenable as the Vulcans were. Right. At least the Vulcans didn't try to enslave everyone, right? And I think that informed 
us, you know, in a way to, to see what we would expect from meeting the next alien race. Of course they would be amenable. Why wouldn't they be? We only really have a small percentage of experience to as our barometer for that. And Dr. Phlox, you know, Denobulin, he's a friendly guy. Right, right. And then, but, but Phlox is coming through the Vulcan Science Academy Diplomatic Relations Medical Exchange Program. So, again, right. a lot of this is being informed through how we have built diplomatic relations with Vulcan, but really nobody else. So, of course, when we found Clang in Broken Bow, he would be, you know, an alien race that we could probably negotiate with because... What's our past experience of that? Really, zero. Yeah, right. Good point, yeah. So they go out there, and then they meet various races. Uh, the Klingons they encounter, again, uh, sleeping dogs, I think is a good example. And, and even actually at the end of Unexpected, they encounter Klingons again, right? And the Klingons think mm-hmm. it's hilarious that Trip has gotten himself pregnant. <laughs> but <laughs> even then, like you, yeah. you get this... Archer and his crew, they're coming to learn that there are a lot of unfriendly people out here. And then right. you get the Suliban, of course, and it makes them start to question the wisdom of wandering around the galaxy without some way to defend themselves. So for you, what are some of the on-the-job moments, I guess, the on, on-the-job experience that you see the NX01 crew go through that, you know, really changed their vision of this job they have now of exploring deep space? Well, I think the first encounter with the Suliban in Broken Bow, I think that really puts their feet to the fire when it comes to, oh my gosh, we're not ready for this. Because they've seen technology right. that they've never encountered before. They've seen, obviously, an alien but not just an alien, a genetically modified alien in the Suleiman because of what was happening with the Temporal Cold War and how, how one side was arming one side of the, of the arms race, the Temporal Arms Race. So that in and of itself, it really probably enlightened the crew in a way where they were probably thinking, are we ready for this? What have we brought on this ship that would prepare us for defending ourselves if we need to and continue the exploration and try to continue relationships with alien races that are hopefully peaceful because again it's not like we have the best track record moving forward with setting up diplomatic relations because of what happened with clang that wasn't diplomatic relations per se that was trying to sew together a really tattered flag of truce you know, because the Klingons weren't interested in peace. The Klingons were interested in getting their man back. Peace was just a byproduct of what happened. Yeah. And then you have obviously what happened, you know, you had Silic and the Suliban. That, again, not, uh, not sitting down at the dinner table to discuss peaceful relationships. You know, I'm thinking about how the Vulcans interacted with humans up to that point and the relationship, it's like a parent and a child. The Vulcans were holding humans back, especially from Archer's perspective, in trying to prevent them from developing warp drive too quickly, especially the warp five drive, because Vulcans knew what was out there. 
The Vulcans knew who the Klingons were, and the Vulcans knew that there are many other dangerous races. And in fact, the the Vulcans and the Andorians sort of have their own little spy game arms race going with each other. That's right, yeah. And it feels like maybe that's one of the great disservices of the relationship with the Vulcans up to that point in sort of the way as a parent, you you walk this fine line between protecting your children and teaching your children about the world because you don't want them to be harmed, but you can overdo it so that they find themselves in a situation where they are harmed later on because they have this naivety because you've sort of, you've protected them from the realities mm-hmm. of the world too much. It feels like that a lot with the Vulcans and the humans here. That the the Vulcans, they they didn't let the they didn't prepare the humans for the eventual leaving of the nest, and you know why not? And, and maybe it comes down to in the fourth season when Saval actually admits to Admiral Forrest that humans scare Vulcans. Maybe seeing the humans coming out of this great war, they're really cautious about rearming humans, letting them really develop uh, weapons, deploying them on a ship, and letting them loose out there. Well, the way that I saw the Vulcans' relationship with humans at that stage during the Warp 5 technical evolution was, again, I agree, it was a it was a parent being a little heavy-handed with a child. But also, I think that the Vulcans were taking it from the standpoint that they are very methodical, they're very scientific, they're very logical, they have a very mm-hmm. standardized progression for what has to be done at a certain time, by when, and for specific reasons. The human race doesn't work like that. I mean, when we actually take real-time behavioral application of the human race teach us what we need to know enough of and let us go out there and do it and prove it. That flies in the face of everything that the Vulcans stand for because, again, the Vulcans have a set pattern of doing things and we have a very impatient and very intuitive and very courageous and prideful way of owning Mm -hmm. that type of leaping-before-you-look kind of mentality. So... And that's not necessarily mm-hmm. a bad thing. Yeah, that describes humans well. Yeah, I mean, that's not necessarily... Yeah. I mean, that's who we are. That's that's how we've always been. And even Archer, as conditioned as an officer as he is, still wants to go out there and prove to these Vulcans that my father's engine works, the ship is ready, my crew is ready, let us go out there and do it. And if we even stumble, okay, we stumble. But we'll figure out a way to go through it. And that leads us into why we may have stirred up a little bit of trouble out there because we weren't prepared, not necessarily for meeting aliens. It was we weren't prepared for establishing diplomatic relations with aliens. Right. Well, we weren't ready to talk to them, right? We didn't know. Right. That's where it comes back for me, this mentality that we have today that many people think is dangerous, especially if you watch certain movies, you know, people, you've always got the the military people telling the scientists that they're crazy, right? Thinking that aliens mm-hmm. are all going to be benevolent and they're going to be so much more advanced than us. But it, it is a good question. Why didn't they have a diplomatic officer on the ship? If you go out there and your stated mission is to seek out strange new worlds, then you would expect 
that you're obviously, you're certainly hoping that you're going to meet alien races. So it would make sense, right, that you would have, I think, not only just one, but I mean, you would have like a diplomatic corps on the ship, maybe a team of like five or six people who are trained in diplomacy. Yeah. And when you run, think about the day-to-day responsibilities of Captain Archer running the very first Warp 5 exploratory starship. The list of responsibilities that he has to have on a daily basis must be just mind-numbing, too, especially when they're all new to this. So he has to take care of the crew. He has to take care of the mm-hmm. command staff. He has to take care of making sure that this, that, and the other thing are tied down, ready to Look, go. Norm, Porthos, he has a name. Oh, yeah, and <laughs> and to make sure the cheese is well-stocked <laughs> and making sure that DePaul right. can come into his quarters and <laughs> not get offended by her heightened Vulcan olfactory senses. But all that being all that aside, the responsibility level is enormous. So that bearing down on him, I don't think is the best way to go about seeking out new life and new civilizations. Why not have a trained official that has been given the tenants of Starfleet to go out there and be the olive branch? That's his only job or the diplomatic corps' only job on the ship. And I also think that it would have been a really neat dynamic from a writing standpoint because, as we all know, watching the original series or watching The Next Generation, that diplomats and Starfleet personnel don't always see eye to eye when it comes to the mission or how to establish these relationships with new races or or new species or how to handle that first that first step. And I think that Scott Bakula's Archer would have really benefited from having a non-officer to wrestle those finer points about with. We could look at it as, in terms of setting up the in-universe and the fact that, like you said, especially with the original series, you know, Kirk gets really fed up with having any diplomats on the ship. You could look at it as... They send Archer and the NX-01 out there without any of that because Archer's a lot like the early explorers on Earth, right? He's got his ship. He's going to go out there and he's going to talk to people. And then over time, Starfleet captains, they kind of get used to this. Like they're the ones in charge. By the time we get to the 23rd century, now they're starting to put people like Fox on there. They're they're Mm -hmm. sending the diplomats out. And... Captains like Kirk are getting really fed up with it. And then by the time we get to the 24th century, you've got a ship like the Enterprise D where Picard is just very accustomed to ferrying diplomats around to different conferences. So it's like a progression. So even though it feels like for us as humans, by this point in time in the 22nd century, we would have some whole structure here about we're going to have, you know, you're the captain of the ship. This is the diplomatic corps. But within Star Trek storytelling, maybe it's better to to show those early days of having sort of the lone explorer and the captain there w- with his little team with him. You know, that that goes back to the pioneering aspect of Star Trek, having everything within the crew and not having any external forces act on the crew. But when you really look at trying to play some type of real-time mechanic on how the ship works, it really would have benefited Mm -hmm. them overall if they actually had an experienced diplomat 
working with the crew and saying, okay, when we land on this planet, this is what we're going to do. We will not try to offend anyone in any way. We will not send out our star charts to the first person who talks to us because we just want to be friendly because we don't know. I mean, okay, we're going back to... We will not let your dog pee on a tree. It could be somebody's God, who, for all we know, you know, for our race's, you know, holy tabernacle. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, I think that going back to the original point of weaponizing Starfleet, maybe it would have been a better balance to bring on, again, someone who was trained along with defensive measures for the ship so that there was a better, better balance of yeah. of a positive outcome versus a defensive outcome. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because when we think about Star Trek, we do think about the message being that we can work together, right? There needs to be some diplomacy mm-hmm. to it. And in the face of the challenges that began to mount for Archer and the Enterprise crew, instead of doing, as you're saying, you know, bringing in a diplomatic element maybe along with weaponizing the ship and bringing in the Makos, who we're going to talk about in a moment, they just kind of go one way with it, right? We just have better weapons and we bring in the military and we're still going to leave the diplomacy up to Archer. There was an interesting episode of Babylon 5 that I wanted to reference. I know this is going outside the box a little bit, but it was a really perfect example of what happened when you had a career military captain who is doing an exploration mission and runs into a situation where he was not prepared and a custom of an alien opening its gun ports, in this case the Minbari, opening its gun ports and showing this earth vessel that we mean them no harm was in fact an act of war to the earth vessel because they thought that they were going to get fired upon. If you actually had somebody that would have understood the opportunity that was happening with an alien race as opposed to reacting the way that a military officer would react. Maybe the battle of this 10-year war on Earth would have been avoided. That very well could have happened to Archer mm-hmm. if he ran into the wrong race. And if he's, his ship is being scanned, all they really see is a ship full of weaponry with no one really experienced to be able to explain away why an exploration vessel of peace has all of these armaments. That's something that I don't think that a military officer has the ability to deftly explain through Hoshi, who's also already having a hard time of it, to a first contact situation. Yeah, very good point. I mean, you see that later in Star Trek too, where, I mean, people look at the Enterprise D or the Enterprise E or, you know, and, or Voyager, and it looks like a warship to them too, right? Because of all the weapons that are aboard it. And our heroes always have to say, no, we're actually explorers, you know, but, but they've learned it's a dangerous universe. In Enterprise, humans finally get their wake-up call when the Zindi attack Earth. And of course, this was very much out of the blue in terms of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. But it, it is the final wake-up call, right? Like maybe we can deal with the Klingons. You know, we run into them from time to time in deep space. And the Sulaban, I mean, they pop in from time to time. Not a big deal, but suddenly we've got this alien race who's just bent on destroying our planet completely. And that's the moment when Starfleet understands that we can't just go out there and be scientists. We we have to actually 
be a military and defend ourselves. This is almost in a way parallel to what was happening with the story of Into Darkness. I mean, it could have been actually Enterprise Season 3 Into Darkness because this is where Mm -hmm. we remove the trappings of the exploratory nature of the NX-01. And before it heads out, it is given every single opportunity to become a warship and to be charged with this mission of saving Earth. I understand that. And I guess it was heaviest on Archer's conscience because he didn't sign up for this. As a matter of fact, in Mm -hmm. Prelude to Axanar, Alec Peters had this really great ad-libbed line where he said, we're not warriors. That's not what Starfleet is about. Unfortunately, we have these great instances within Star Trek storytelling where Starfleet can really show off what it's capable of when it comes to having to defend the Federation, or in this case, Earth, because the Federation doesn't exist yet. But think about the application of wartime technology to a ship like the NX-01. It must have been really disconcerting to the 83 crew members to all of a sudden be turned into warriors because this is what Earth needed. And then with the addition of the Makos, they really truly bridge the gap of exploratory maritime officers to fully trained combat personnel with one mission to destroy an alien race that they've never even met. What did you think about the addition of the Makos? Because this is something I know ruffled the feathers of a lot of fans because here you have an actual military unit coming on the ship. And like you just said, that was their their sole purpose. And yet at the same time, if the Makos hadn't been there, it would have all been over very early on in the Expanse. I mean, Archer, they're, they're captured and, and it's the Makos that get them out and they would have died otherwise and then Earth would have been destroyed. Well, one of the things that we talked about before the show was the fact that the Makos were armed with technology and armaments that was three years more advanced than what Starfleet had on the ship. Yeah. To me, that's a little mind-boggling since that it wasn't the Makos that was going out into deep space. It was Starfleet that was going out into deep space. And why not give Starfleet every opportunity to be able to defend themselves with the best technology possible? That being said, it was necessary for the construct of the Makos to be part of the show because we did turn it into one long season of the Earth having to defend itself from essentially what it was as a terrorist mm-hmm. attack. Yeah. And un- until we could reconcile that with with the storytelling of the season, there was still a chance of being explorers, but that was really pushed far to the back and everything had to do with focusing on finding the Zindi, exploiting their weaknesses, exploiting their scientists, exploiting every opportunity that could have been peaceful relations and instead it turned it into a race for survival for uh, or preventing the attack from the super weapon or the second super weapon on earth but there were still instances in season 3 where archer tried to make the right call and his ability as an explorer gave him pause to talk to several of the different zindi scientists 
in order to make sure that they were doing the right thing because he was going to go down a path on some of his choices where he would never be able to fully find peace again as as a career military officer. It's it will that's not fair to say. It did change him forever as we saw in season 4 in Home. Do you think this goes back to the idea that again we're talking about weaponizing Starfleet here and fans often debate whether Starfleet is a scientific organization or a military organization as if it has to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. But at this point in history, do you feel more like Starfleet is NASA at this point? You know, it's the space agency. It's not a military organization. And that's why when when you ask the question, why do the Mako have more advanced weapons than Starfleet does, you would think that Starfleet would have the more advanced technology because they're the ones that are going to go out there. But I still think at this point, they're viewing sending the Enterprise out as a scientific mission. And they're just not thinking in terms of... Like, if we were exploring Earth, we would have some way to protect ourselves if we were going into an unknown territory on Earth, Right. But, but they're just not thinking about space that way because I think mm-hmm. that's how we are today with space. You know, we build probes, we build... We're going to send people to Mars sometime this century. Do you think that we're going to send people to Mars with a lot of weapons? You know, probably not. Now, we're not expecting to find any life forms on Mars, but who, you know, who knows what might be out there? What What if we encounter... Not indigenous to Mars, but who knows what might be out there. You know, some other alien comes around. It's just the perfect moment in time, and we're not ready to protect ourselves because we're just not thinking of it in those terms at all. We think it's our blank canvas to explore, but it's not. And I think that's what Archer and his crew was thinking. They were thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. We're going out there to expand our knowledge of the universe and... Instead of filling our cargo bays with armaments, we want to fill our cargo bays with exploratory equipment and scientific equipment and technical tools to be able to get better results when we're exploring planets and we're taking soil samples and we're analyzing this or analyzing that. Yeah, that's the optimistic approach to it. And that's what Star Trek later on is all about because a lot of those practices are already in place when... When it is Kirk's time in the original series, he always says that, you know, we're in a mission of peace, but we're ready to defend ourselves if necessary. Mm-hmm. That party line has already been well established. In 2151 or in 2153 when the Zindi attack, there's no response to that. Well, I think that's the, I think that the Zindi attack and the aftermath of that, that's the turning point, right? That's what leads us to Kirk's position we're here to explore, we're here on a mission of peace, but we will defend ourselves if we have to. Whereas prior to that, it was, we're here to explore, we're on a mission of peace. We shouldn't have to defend ourselves. And then the Zindi attack happens, and then the Romulan thing happens late in season four as well. And mm-hmm. by the time we get to Kirk, that's just, that's the, the party line, right? We'll defend ourselves if we have to. Yeah, it's again, it's it's a really fine line for Starfleet at the time because I would like to believe, and I do believe that they were the NASA of the time. They were one step away from hybridizing NASA's mission with having to be realistic and arming themselves to defend the mission. 
it's probably not the most optimal way of doing it, but from my opinion, I still think that it would have been advantageous to not only just arm it for defense, but to arm it with a diplomat that gave them the ability to even think about first contact relations in a different way. But adding the Makos on the ship really made a definitive line of we are now a militarized organization. And I think that that was the point where Starfleet made that decision to make sure there are military units on the ship. And I think that Hernandez didn't want that on the Columbia. She wasn't comfortable with that because she, she was still, Archer said this in home. She was what Archer was before the Zindi attack. And she still holds on to those ideals, not naivete, but those ideals of still being an explorer and still functioning as an olive branch style captain as she moves out into space. Yeah, the the conversation that they have there on the bridge of the Columbia really sums this all up for me. Hernandez says we've improved hull polarization by 12%. We'll be able to hang in a firefight a little longer. And just the firefight, I mean, that's something that they weren't thinking about when the NX-01 first went out. They didn't think about being in a firefight. And here it's already pushing forward that militarization. Okay, well, we've got to work on our... They don't have shields like we know them yet, but the whole polarization. Right. And Archer notices ventral and dorsal torpedo launchers, pulsed phase cannons. I mean, you are starting to build a warship here, right? And Erica says, upgrade you recommended. And then Archer remembers the argument that he had with Captain Jeffries and who helped design the NX class. And of course, is a nice homage to the fact that we call them Jeffries tubes uh, in the later mm-hmm. on in Star Trek. And Erica says, I'm aware of that. And Archer says, I told him I didn't want to be in command of a warship trying to make first contact with new species. Jeffries was right. We right. needed those weapons and a hell of a lot more. And this is where we see Archer turn. And, and it's it's almost as if he represents the pace of what's happening to Starfleet. Yeah. Because through you know through him, we see it turn from exploratory to exploratory slash defense to heavily armed defense. And the way that he admits it to himself when he's climbing the mountain with Hernandez, he knows that when he says that he felt that he lost something out there, I think he's also saying that Starfleet lost something out there. Absolutely, yeah. And he is, you know, he he's directly affected by the change because this is... This isn't what he and his father discussed when his father was building the plans for the Warp 5 engine. And I think in some way he feels that he has, Archer feels that he has failed Starfleet because either he wasn't A, strong enough as a diplomat, or B, did not have the foresight to try and find other solutions. And then he had to become a soldier as opposed to an explorer. Mm-hmm. Everything that he wanted to do in Starfleet was summarily truncated because this is the reality of space. There is someone out there that will come for you eventually. And he didn't want to accept it. And when he was faced with it, I think it somehow 
ruined or tainted his expectations of what an exploratory mission should have been for him. Yeah, definitely. And and not just for him or in Starfleet losing a little bit out there, but just humanity, like that vision. Like right now, you know, we, we think we're going to get to that better future and that's kind of the message of Star Trek. And you look back at the original series too, like there's this better future, but it seems like every time we turn a corner, the same challenges are there, maybe in a slightly different form. And mm. with the start of Enterprise you can see humans feeling like, okay, we've reached that point now. Now everything's open to us and we're going to go out there and finally we've, le- we've left that strife behind. You know, that war that we had is over and now we're friends with the Vulcans and now we have the ship and we can go out there. And then we realize, nope, it's the same thing all over again. We have to arm ourselves again and we have to fight again. And it, it's easy watching that scene when they're up in the mountains for, for you to really identify with how Archer feels, I think, because it, it parallels life in general. And it's really interesting that Hernandez was there because a, we never really had a chance to as viewers to be exposed to a female Starfleet captain mm-hmm. and B, well, I think that she's at this still... point in the timeline, right? I mean, we had Janeway on Voyager prior to this, but Right, and this point in the timeline is, yeah. Because yeah, um, in TOS, I mean, they even make a comment like women can't be captains. Janice Lester said that in Turnabout Intruder. She was pretty yeah, adamant right. about um, about Kirk uh, yeah. being in an all-boys club, if you will. Right, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, but at this stage in the game, seeing uh, Hernandez there, it was nice for her to be able to remind Archer that there's still a great deal of exploration that needs to be done you can't shy away from it just because you got beaten down a bit. You got your teeth kicked in a little bit because not every race is going to be like that. Not every race is going to be the Zindi. Conversely, as we know, you know, moving forward, you know, we have some more aggressive races like the Cardassian, the Borg, you know, the, even the Nausicans in a little bit. But at this stage in the game, I think that Archer has lost a little bit of that innocence and that informs him on how important building the United Federation of Planets really is because he needs to surround himself and he needs to have Earth surrounded by allies, Mm -hmm. allies that have had all of these experiences with other races, allies that have the ability to help them forge greater end roads into better diplomatic relationships with alien races that they may never have met if it weren't for the core group of the United Federation of Planets being the Vulcans and the Tellarites and the Andorians and their relationships that branch out further than the beginning of the United Federation of Planets. But I think it also says something about humans that in the end, we did weaponize Starfleet, but at the same time, it's the humans and and even Archer's abilities in diplomacy that finally bring everyone together though that that do do lead us to the federation of planets well we always we always see in enterprise and in star trek that the humans are the catalyst for a lot of these events because we are an incredibly impulsive race we are incredibly stubborn and willful and courageous and foolish and prideful race but I believe those are the characteristics that 
allow us to move forward, let us get into a little bit of trouble, sometimes expose us to a lot of trouble. But ultimately, it's that combination of characteristics that these alien races, I think, in some way admire Mm -hmm. and need to be a part of because these alien races have been around for a long, long, long time. They've been spacefaring for probably hundreds, if not thousands of years before us. And they see this little teeny tiny race on this little teeny tiny planet going out there and doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Why? Because this is what we do. And I think that they actually do enjoy being a part of it. Oh, I was going to say because it's humans writing the stories, Norm. Well, that too. But they don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess wrapping up here, the other thing, the other observation I would suppose, let me know if you agree, is that although we do weaponize Starfleet, we do start to more heavily arm our ships after the Zindi scare, we also do... I think fairly quickly find a balance there, right? We we could go to the extreme. We could become extremely defensive. We could become trigger happy every time we feel threatened. But we don't. You know, we see Starfleet build ships that are very powerful, can defend themselves against most any threats, but yet there remains a restraint. You know, we see Kirk, we see Picard, we see everyone have restraint in only using those for defensive purposes and often holding off until it's become clear that they really don't have an alternative. So it, it we talk about weaponizing, but it isn't so much about becoming militaristic as it is just developing a good ability for self-defense. There's a really good example of what you just discussed And that was in the original series in Mirror Mirror when Kirk said to the Hawkins, we could take the dilithium crystals from you, but we won't use force. Remember that. That's not what Starfleet is about. And I think that every single time diplomatic relationships are laid down with either new races or races that we're trying to maintain relationships with, I think that that's a tenant that Starfleet uses. We could do what we want to do. We have the ability, but that's not who we are. This isn't what we do. We want to make sure that your needs are being met, our needs are being met. We're trying to create long-standing relationships so that we can maintain commerce and trade. And if you guys have fantastic coffee, we'd like that too. <laughs> you know, things like that, you know. Some pecan pie Pecan yeah. pie, Ractagino. You know, we wouldn't have <laughs> Ractagino if it wasn't for great relationships with the Klingon Empire. And that's really what the NXO one was about. It was about making sure that we could get the best coffee runs possible. So, <laughs> no, but <laughs> all kidding aside, it's we always had the ability to show off that we had, we could command things by force because we had the ability. But it, it's in our restraint as human beings and that proof that gives us the credibility as a spacefaring race with other races that we meet because we won't use that option. Yeah, most definitely. And that brings us to, you know, the heart of Star Trek, I think there, that we won't use that option. All right. Well, it's it's been interesting discussing the weaponization of 
Starfleet here today, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. But instead of it being a human being prejudiced against Vulcans because the Romulans look like Vulcans, the Vulcans are taking advantage of themselves looking like Romulans in order to be racist against Romulans. Earl Grey. So, it is. so he's got the two armrests, and the right one says little, you know, Ensign, you know, Lamont, and the little arrow, and then the one on the on the left says Lieutenant Commander Data. <laughs> got a little arrow. Yep. The orb. But when they pull away from that window with Jake and Kira, and they pull away from the station, it's like they're closing the book. They're, they're actually closing the back cover of the book, and it's the end of the story. To the journey! How do you feel, Char, about the Borg Queen? Oh boy. I think the longer that I have watched Star Trek, the more I'm in the camp of, I don't know if I like her. The Ready Room. They want you to come across on Archer's side where he can be mad at Trip. But I have a really hard time being Archer being mad at Trip because just think of if we still treated, you know, people of a different race like this. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. That can honestly be the reason they brought Wesley, because Wesley's got nothing else going for him there. I mean, yes, he can lead those kids, but that's just going to be by virtue of his age. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he's 15 years old. Of course, all the other kids are going to look up to him, at least for a while. And then if he ends up being a total tool, then they won't. Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah, yeah well, Learning Curve was never meant to be a season one finale. They were going to do the 37s, and then UPN wanted to open season two with it, and that totally didn't work either. Man, you got you to gotta say, UPN really ooped it up. Literary Treks. What Jerry Taylor talks about with Catherine Janeway's life is it's kind of a series of her relationships. I mean, she should be doing all sorts of fantastic things, right? And instead, we're learning about her boyfriends. Melodic Treks. But there's a whole host of, of people that appear in Star Trek. As I said, most of it is classic courses for the Vivaldi, Strauss, Trojkovsky, um, Harry Kim. The 602 Club. This really does have an impact on, I think, the entire you know, comic book world. Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns still have a huge impact in the way that people view Batman today. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us everywhere you get your podcast. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Windows Phone, BlackBerry, SoundCloud. Many, many ways for you to get the shows. You can go to our website, you can stream from the show page, you can download the MP3 file, grab the RSS link. If you use a third-party application, just pop that in and you'll find the shows wherever you get your audio. And while you're on iTunes or on Stitcher, if you have a free moment, leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear what you think about the show, and that helps other Enterprise fans find Warp 5 as they're searching for Star Trek podcasts. Another way that you can help us out is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash trekafilm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekafilm. You'll see our current goals there, our milestone contribution levels. You can set any amount you want to contribute to the network each month, but the milestone levels uh, give you some guidelines of what our perks are. We have a lot of great perks for you. We have digital items. We have a chance to sit in on show recordings. You can become part of our content development team or even an associate producer, and you're 
support is just absolutely critical to making it possible for us to bring you Star Trek talk every day. So I hope you'll become part of the team by supporting us on Patreon. And of course, Norm, you are a big supporter of us, which I thank you for very much, and also an associate producer of a lot of shows on the network. I am, and actually, this is one of the ways that I was able to learn a lot more about Trek FM and what Trek FM has to offer in all of its different channels for broadcasting Trek. It is a great way to find out more about the network, and I hope we can always use new people on our content development team as well. And you'll see that over there as one of the perks. So, Norm, as I said up front, you are the new permanent co-host here on Warp 5, and I'm glad to have you here. Tell everyone where else they can find you, uh, both around the webs and on the network, and what you're doing. Well, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity of being your co-host. I think that uh, that Enterprise is a show that is always worth talking about. I don't think it got its fair shake in broadcast, and no. I'm glad that we can revisit a lot of the episodes and bring that content to the listeners. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I have said before, and I will say it again, that I am a huge supporter of Trek FM through Patreon, and it has allowed me to become the associate producer for this show, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Star Trek Axanar, the official Axanar podcast. For me, it has opened up a huge world of possibilities talking star trek to all of you great listeners out there and i can't thank everyone at trek fm enough for all the opportunities oh absolutely well and and i'm glad to have you here because you know enterprise and it's so difficult to find people who really know and love enterprise to really dig into it it seems to be the hardest show which i I guess makes sense to a lot of people right because it is sort of the the most what would you say the most dismissed star trek of all the series Amongst the fan base? Well, I think so. Yeah, I think so because it came at a really difficult time. And I think that it also suffered part of the writer's strike of early 2000. I think that was Mm -hmm. in 2000 or 2001. Mm -hmm. So it never really had its legs underneath it at the beginning. Definitely not after the writer's strike. And I think that basically everyone was suffering from a little bit of Star Trek fatigue. Even the most stalwart Star Trek fans But the interesting thing that I did listen to or read about on the Babel conference was so many fans that are listening to shows in Trek FM revisiting Enterprise for the very, well, again, or for the very first time. Yeah, often for the first time. And I think that distance between the broadcast and and being able to discover it on Blu-ray or Netflix has really done wonders for people becoming new fans of the show. Yeah, I think so too. Being able to watch it more quickly helps a lot, right? Because you can... Follow the story a little bit more, especially with the third season. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the seasons had their ups and downs, and at least you don't have to worry about anticipating if the next episode is going to be decent or waiting for the next episode to wash away kind of like the bad taste if there was the previous episode. I mean, you know how network TV works, you know, so. Now you can go, Ferengi, uh, yeah, let's go to the next episode on the disc, right? It's like... That was a good try. We'll see what you can come up with next week. (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, one more thing before we let everyone go. Um, Well, you mentioned the Babel Conference, Norm, which I don't think we've mentioned yet in the show today. The Babel Mm -hmm. Conference is our closed Facebook group for listeners. We used to have forums on our website, 
but we've replaced that with this group on Facebook. So go over to Facebook and type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and it'll come right up, the Babel Conference, or go to our website and click Discussion up on the menu bar. That'll take you there as well. It is a closed group, so you need to click Join, but I'll let you right on in there. We have hundreds of people in there. We have great discussions all the time about all aspects of Star Trek and a lot about Enterprise as well. And other ways you can get in touch with us is to go to our website, trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to me by email. You can also send us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash trekfm. And you can find us on Twitter, where our username is trekfm. One more thing that I want to tell you about before we go You can help send an actual enterprise into orbit by supporting this project called Enterprise in Space. This is a project that both Larry Nemechek and I are involved in right now. And it is a project of the National Space Society to build an eight-foot orbiter called the NSS Enterprise. And the NSS Enterprise will carry more than 100 student-designed experiments into space. And these are students kindergarten through postgraduate. And there's no cost to the students to get their experiments sent up into space. And it's a great way to support science education as well as developing space technologies. And you can become a virtual crew member. You can have your name sent up into space aboard the Enterprise. And once the orbit is complete, it's going to be up there for a bit. It's going to come back down. We're going to retrieve the ship and it will go into a museum. And you will then, again, be a virtual crew member aboard that historic flight. And you can support the project by going to enterpriseinspace.org. There is a video there. There's all kinds of information about the project. And you can become a crew member and also get membership in the National Space Society for much less than it would normally cost. Another way you can support the project is to submit your design for the ship. We have a design contest going on right now. The deadline is December 8th. You don't need to be an engineer. We have people on the project who have worked on the shuttle program, worked for NASA. We have people who are going to actually build the spacecraft. But we want your ideas for designs. Someone is going to win this contest and their design is going to actually be built and sent into space carrying the name Enterprise. So if you have an idea, you just need to submit the visual aesthetics of it. And all the instructions for that are there on the website at enterpriseinspace.org. So I hope you'll support the project and enter the contest. Well, Norm, that's all we have for everyone today. So uh, thanks again for joining me. And it's great to have you here aboard the NX-01. Thank you, Christopher. It's been my pleasure. And uh, I can't wait to get to the next episode. Me neither. So everyone, join us again next time here in the Decon Chamber for yet another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>